Hey, I think I wanted to do this interview since the first talk I had with Lena about this possible podcast. I got to talk today to Dr. Gabriela Monsalve. She is the Assistant Dean for Postdoctoral Affairs at UCSF. And she represents the two ends of the stick. She is a scientist. She did her PhD and a postdoc at prestige universities and then decided to go to a non-scientific or non-benchtop career path. She is a policymaker. And on the other end of the stick, she is a policymaker for postdocs to get better career decision along the way as part of their training. Not only postdocs, but also grad students. It was amazing. She is an amazing person and the most accomplished scientist and policymaker. And I hope you enjoy. Hi, good morning, Gabby. Good morning, Oprah. How are you doing? Yeah, considering the circumstances, I'm, I'm okay in yourself. Right. Uh, I'm okay. I think uh, I think it's important for the audience to know that you and I are both parents. Um, and so what survival means right now is a little different um, when you've got, especially you've got a four-year-old and I've got a three-year-old, right? Yeah. It's a little, it's a little nuts. <laughs> yes, yes. It's uh, truly nuts when world collide, when elementary school, a postdoc, uh, an assistant dean office all exist at the same house. Right, and exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So, Gabby, you're today uh, an assistant dean for postdoc affairs, right, at UCSF? That's right. That's right. So let us start from the present, and then we're going to trace back to where it all, uh, all started. What is the role of the assistant dean for postdoc affairs? So the assistant dean for postdoctoral scholars at UCSF is a unique role. It combines uh, both administrative processing and policy, as well as advocacy and coaching and advising. Which, uh, and I have to say that the latter is really where my heart is um, when it comes to this role, um, along with the, the policy. And for me, streamlining processes that are going to help postdocs out. Um, especially at an institution like UCSF that is so decentralized. At other institutions that are research-focused like UCSF, there's usually a director. Sometimes there may be an assistant dean or an associate dean that's overseeing the postdoctoral affairs office. And the responsibilities of that unit can include everything from HR, so onboarding in terms of appointment, to policy, to... Um, to benefits and compensation, to advocacy, um, and to community building, um, and career and professional development. That's a, that's a huge component of many of these offices. Um, I think the, the way that my office is unique is that I can really focus on the policy, advocacy, and community building aspects of what postdocs need during this training period, because we have such a rich, um, a wealth of resources at UCSF. We have HR that takes care of terms of appointment. We have an entire office of career and professional development that can that does that very well and is, is internationally recognized for their work in that area. Um, and so it allows me to be really hyper focused on some more of the some more of the administrative needs of postdocs. 
It sounds like a lot of work taking care of the entire life cycle of a postdoc from onboarding to setting off at the end, right? It is a lot of work, but I have to tell you, it's, um, it's a passion project for me because I was a postdoc at UCSF. So um, I, I don't think that my experience at UCSF was particularly unique. I think I had a pretty regular postdoc. Um, I had... I had a really supportive PI. I loved the group that I was in. I had a lot of projects that were kind of, you know, working and not working. Um, but I also came to UCSF from a different institution like many postdocs. And so there was a period where um, I was acclimating to the Bay Area, acclimating to UCSF, acclimating to the speed and the rigor um, and the level of research that's done here. Um, and, and then I had to leave, you know, so then I did my work and then I, and then I decided to leave. And so then there was an entire thing around that. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, and so I really, I, I'm really invested in helping people navigate this institution, um, but also to be successful in whatever their career objective is from the day that they start to the day that they leave. Who's tracing, as you mentioned, tracing back to this point when you you had a post you did a postdoc you're a scientist uh, a biologist uh, mm-hmm. as a general term uh, and you did a postdoc at UCSF and, and you said you had to leave could you trace back and really take us through this decision making point that you said okay I did a postdoc there is the obvious PI tenure track um, uh, career path I can take, but this is not this is not what I'm going to do. I'm going to pursue something else. Can you take us back to this point? Sure, um, I'd be happy to. I have to say that there's probably a little bit of a backstory that's important to understand. Backstories the... are amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the backstory is. I mean, I tell this story not facetiously, but really, it's true. When I was a little kid. I wanted to be a theoretical physicist. I remember reading a book at five years old that talked about the stars. And I remember thinking, wow, physics is really neat. And I want to understand the universe. So from an early age, I wanted to be a scientist or at least be on the forefront of knowledge. That was something that was a core value to me. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that um, my My family, we were immigrants from Venezuela. My dad came to the U.S. to study English and then to pursue a master's and ultimately a Ph.D. in food science. And so I grew up on a university campus as a young child. Um, I lived in campus housing um, and I had I had the privilege of really um, of understanding what university life could be. And I think at at that young of age, I, I liked it. I liked where we lived. It was a small college town and I had a really happy childhood. Um, the other thing is because we were immigrants, um, we, had, um, we had financial insecurity, right? So we didn't come, my family didn't come with a, a lot of money and we came and we're trying to make a life for, my parents were trying to make a life for us here in the United States. So one of the things that I really liked about academia in particular was that there was a perceived sense of security. So if I were to pursue this career path, that there would be some sort of job security. And so that really led me probably um, throughout my, you know, elementary, middle school and high school education to really 
be hyper-focused on getting a doctorate in something and to be a professor. So that was the goal. So at a young age, I would say that I wanted to be a faculty member. And I think that is rare among um, many PhDs is that I don't think a lot of them are saying, I want to be a professor at five years old, but that was me. And that was, you know, my experience as a, as a growing up as an immigrant here in the U S I think colored that. Um, and so, so I was, I was a various, I was a nerd and I studied crazy and I knew because I had asked people and talked to people and I didn't realize they were informational interviews at the time, but they were, um, that what was really going to be important for me to become a professor was to get the best PhD training, get the best training in how to be a scientist, and then to go to a place for my postdoc where, the, where I was going to be supported in launching my research independence. Um, and so that's how I prioritized how I picked my graduate advisor, who um, uh, who I am still have a wonderful relationship to this day. And that's also one of the major things that helped me to um, to kind of fine tune who I was going to interview for postdoc positions, and ultimately what led me to UCSF. Um, and so I tell you that because when I, um, as a graduate student, I I would say that I did something really stupid, which is something that I tell people not to do, which is don't overwork yourself. I definitely burned out in grad school. Um, I took on a project that I designed, so this was by my choice, to, um, to do these time courses and to look at, um, essentially my, my graduate thesis was on um, biological rhythms um, using a model organism called C. elegans and using a molten cycle. Um, and anybody who works on biological rhythms, circadian rhythms, ultradian rhythms, what have you, knows, know this intimately, is that if you work on something that is going to study sleep-wake or any sort of cyclical behavior, you yourself will not sleep. And so this is what led to my burnout, is that I would do these time courses that were 48 hours straight, and I would just, you know, monitoring animals, and, um, and I decided like at the end of graduate school, I was really torn about whether I wanted to pursue a faculty career because I thought, okay, the postdoc should be more intense than this. This is what everybody's telling me. It's even more pressure because I'm really, now I've learned how to be a scientist. Now I need to learn how to launch my research independence. Like there is no training period in that sense from the postdoc. So I went back and forth and decided that if I was going to do a postdoc, it was going to be under these circumstances. And it turns out that at UCSF and with Keith Yamamoto, it was exactly that perfect storm. So I came to UCSF thinking, I'm going to be a faculty member, at least that's what I'm training to. But because I had burned out in graduate school, I was very open to other possibilities because I didn't want to go back to that space. So if, it, if my postdoc at any point got too intense, um, I wanted to be able to say, okay, let's reframe and let's think about other ways that I can use my skills and my experiences that are going to align better with my values. Um, so, so that brings us to the point of when did I decide to leave my postdoc. So my postdoc was, honestly, it was amazing. I love my postdoc. I, um, it was a very difficult decision. Um, I've told this story to a number of people, but um, the the decision to move on my postdoc, and I, fin I just, in full disclosure, I did three years as a postdoc, so three full years, and I was going on to my fourth year when I decided to leave. Um, the decision was very difficult. So within the context of, 
I want to be a faculty member. I want to be able to, to train and mentor students. Um, I want to be on the forefront of knowledge, all of those things that are core values to me. There were, um, there were some things that I didn't like, which was I didn't like being, having, never being able to turn off my work. So when I say that, like never being able to even shut my brain off thinking about work, I felt like I was thinking about my research every waking moment. And when I wasn't thinking about my research, I felt guilty. You know, like I, I remember these times when I would go for a walk just to kind of escape and I would start thinking about transporters in the context of where I was. And I said, well, I can't even get a break from my own brain. And I really didn't like that. I wanted to be able to get to a point where I could say, I'm going to go on vacation and I'm going to enjoy time with my family or my friends. Um, and if I get inspired, so be it. But I don't want to be guilty or thinking that I have to be thinking about my research all of the time. Um, and I was afraid, and I don't know if it's true, but I was afraid that if I continued the faculty route, that that would be the rest of my life. And so I was really concerned about that. Um, but honestly, what it came down to was that I had an opportunity to volunteer for the MIND program and kind of sit in on some of the, um, the courses and do a MIADP. Um, and in that, I realized that there were some core values that conflicted with being a research faculty for me. Um, and this doesn't mean that it would be true for anybody who's listening to this, but one of the things that conflicted for me was that I knew that I wanted to stay in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. I told you guys that I immigrated to the United States from Venezuela. I have moved around the United States a number of times. Um, and when I finally got to the Bay Area, I finally felt like I found a home. It just felt right. And I didn't want to be moving around anymore. So I just did a, a, I just did a real, a real uh, an assessment on the possibility of getting a faculty job at the institutions in the Bay Area. And I realized that those odds were low for me. They're low for anybody. But what it was going to take for me to get those jobs, even if I was perfect on paper, didn't necessarily mean it was still going to happen. I wasn't comfortable with that risk. The other thing that was um, that really pushed me to consider administration was that one of the things that I really enjoyed in as an undergraduate and as a graduate student was thinking about how um, how processes and policies shape educational um, the educational mission at the university. Um, I would volunteer on those efforts and I really liked it. I really liked the fact that it was collaborative, um, that, that people really sought to have all voices heard and that um, it, there was something that I just, that particularly appealed to me about that. So that was one other part. But the other way that this conflicted with me was that I felt for myself that I, I knew I wanted to have a family and I was not sure with the information that I had gathered by talking to people that I was going to be able to be the type of parent that I wanted to be if I were to be on the tenure clock while caring for young children. And so again, these are just personal decisions that I made, but I felt like those were, those were things that kind of went into my decision to leave. Uh, but the decision wasn't easy to leave either. I was really fortunate. I had, I was fully funded. 
Um, so I had a Damon Runyon Fellowship. I had a University of California postdoc um, fellowship. Uh, we, we received an R21 for my work. Um, so not only was my salary paid, but the research was paid for, at least we had funding for it. And the project was going really well. In fact, I had, I, I remember I had five projects that I was overseeing at the time. And my biggest issue was that I didn't have enough hands to do all of the work, but generally, you know, I was getting ready to launch a genetic screen in both C. elegans and in human models. And we were also doing a leukemia or a, uh, a TALL, a leukemia blood cancer project. And there was just a lot of really exciting science going on. And so part of the, part of the decision or the agony was like, how do I leave those projects behind and just drop them? Because I wasn't sure that there was going to be anybody to pick them up and to continue that science going. So it was not an easy decision, but I think in the end, what it came down to was that this next opportunity didn't clash with those core values that I had. Um, and and yeah. just before we jump into the next opportunity, uh, which is the mind course, right? And you're gonna elaborate on that. So mm -hmm. if we concise everything is, it was very, it was very important to your decision-making to have your core values, professional and uh, personal, being very formed and uh, very early on. And this is what led you to a more, uh, more logic-based decision-making at the end, which is very hard because you probably know, and you can, and I can share as well. The decision, especially as a, you uh, as a, as past immigrant in the, in the in the U.S. and I'm the current immigrant in the U.S. The decision is of whether to leave a postdoc or what you do after this career is, is not just professional. There are a lot of considerations outside of it. Some of them are also emotional, and, and some people tend to go with the emotion instead of of the logic. So being formed very early on, you think was very, was very important. And, and I'd be happy to, if you can now just elaborate a bit on, on the mind course, just uh, disclosure, this is the way I met you. And I was at the first, first time uh, you spoke and I was like, okay, she is amazing. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's really sweet. I, um, let me, let me, there's one thing I want to say, because I realized as you were talking that um, I didn't realize that I had these core values until I got to a point where this was an opportunity for me and I had to make a decision. So I have to be honest with you. When I say it was a difficult decision, I had an identity crisis. <laughs> so I really went through about a month of trying to figure out if I leave my postdoc, am I a scientist anymore? Do I lose my identity as a scientist? Do I lose all of the things that I've been working for? Because I mean, I had been working fiercely through my postdoc all of that time to get to where I was. Um, and so I had an identity as a scientist, as an academic, as a, a knowledge creator. And so part of it was, part of the agony was also like, okay, I have to be, I have to like think about what my actual core values are. and then I have to accept that my identity is going to change. Um, so that being said, I still identify as a scientist. I, I can't, you can't train for 15 years after high school and not call yourself a scientist <laughs> after that. But, um, but what I do is different than what I used to do when I was at a bench at the bench. But yeah, let's talk about the mind course. So that was cool. Yeah. And, but you still <laughs> employ science based 
scientific thinking in your day to day. Absolutely. You never like, just to be clear, there's no way that you can train as rigorously as we have and not lose that mindset. I use my, I use my training every single day. I just use it in a different way. And we certainly did that with the mind course. So we, we talked about the mind course a a couple of times. So what does it stand for? Yes. So the MIND program is uh, an acronym for Motivating Informed Decisions. Um, And the program was funded through a common fund, an NIH common fund grant that um, that was the the PIs on that were Keith Yamamoto, who was my postdoc advisor, Terry O'Brien, who's the associate chancellor here at UCSF. Um, Bill Lindstad, who is Assistant Vice Chancellor for um, International or for Postdocs, Students, Career Affairs. Um, and Jenny Dorman, who, uh, was, um, uh, who was the program director um, and um, also herself a, um, a molecular geneticist by training. Um, the program itself was really unique because NIH had tasked the, um, the institutions who received this one-time grant to fundamentally change the culture um, among biomedical training of graduate students and postdocs. And so what UCSF decided to do with that charge was to develop a curriculum that focused on early interventions and giving postdocs and graduate students the tools to be able to explore their careers in a period where it wasn't mission critical. So not when um, you know, your visa was running out and you needed to find a job or where you finally got a job and you're gonna, like me, have an identity crisis. But really think about the, um, uh, when you think about the development plan, your core values, the things that are important to you, the skills that you have and the experiences that you bring, and how that's going to translate into the diversity of careers that are available to people with biomedical PhD training. So the course itself um, is a cohort-based course. Um, we, we, it was by application, so you either had to be a postdoc or a graduate student who passed their qualifying exam. Um, it starts in the fall. We do something called the catalytic course, which is um, three all-day Saturdays, eight hours, where you're just getting that's those skills, the knowledge, the language to be able to talk about what career exploration actually means. Um, and then we launch you into peer teams, which are teams of seven or five to seven people with two co-facilitators who are there to help you as you navigate the career exploration process. Um, and I would say that the heart and soul of the MIND program is in those peer teams. And it's also the most difficult part. I think everybody really enjoys the catalytic phase because it literally is just a class. And if, if you've gotten to be a PhD student or a postdoc at UCSF, you're, you've probably been a really good student. So you probably really enjoy the classroom environment. And that's really what it is. So it's a lot of fun, interactive activities. Um, and you're with a group of people that are all really focused on doing this thing together. The peer team phase is where you set contracts for yourself on what you're going to um, essentially investigate as potential career opportunities. You create the things that you want to be held accountable to, and then that team keeps you accountable to that. And so year after year, people would tell us that the peer team phases where they really understood and under like really learned what it meant to network, what it meant to do an informational interview, how they got their positions, 
but almost everybody also said that it was the hardest part of the class because it was every two weeks you meet for 90 minutes and you had to have people hold you accountable to this. And so it wasn't fun during it, but it was very valuable afterwards. Um, and that entire class lasts about nine months and then we do it all again every year. And, and this is probably the first encounter of, uh, let's take a grad student uh, with the world outside academia or the plethora of, of career options outside academia. And everything is encouraged by UCSF, right? By the Institute itself, or as you mentioned, by the NIH, which is the mother institute of all research institute in healthcare in, in, in the US. What right. is what is the incentive? If we train to do academic, if we train academically and route it towards PI, what is the incentive? That's a really good question. I think there are definitely other people on the other side of this um, when we started the MIND program in particular, who said, what is the point of this? I mean, the, the, the purpose of the PhD is to train future faculty. So it's almost, um, you're taking people away from valuable work that they could be doing with their research by having them focus on the career and professional development. Um, the, I would say that the answer is, is that the reality among the majority of people who with a biomedical PhD is that they don't become faculty. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that, which I'm sure our listeners know about. What is less done is, um, is focusing on the career paths that PhDs do pursue. And so this was, this was designed to begin to open that window for, for trainees um, and, to, and to have them appreciate that while what they are doing perhaps at the bench doesn't seem like it might be relevant for a future career if they're considering something other than the faculty route, that there are ways that the skills that they're developing now will be foundational for the work that they're going to do after they leave UCSF. Um, so, you know, as an institution, um, NIH, um, other academic and other training institutions, we have a responsibility for truth and advertisement. If you're going to come to UCSF to get training as a postdoc or as a graduate student, we need to train you to be a good research scientist, but we also need to train you to become a professional. Um, and so that's the other response that I give to people is that this is, this is one way that um, the trainees can get that, get that, that part of what is supposed to be a training period for you. I can share that when I sat in the classroom, I did the Catholic part of the mind course about two years ago. And this was the point when I came to you the first time to the US and I joined UCSF as a postdoc, I sat in the onboard meeting about a week into my position uh, start day. And I saw the onboarding video and which was very, this is us, this is the brand. And, and I, I, I didn't came from this culture, so I didn't understand it. But, when I sat through the Catholic course, I, I felt for the first time, wow, this is like this is the institute I'm in. It's it's amazing. It's it's, it's an amazing choice, and, and they're very outspoken about it. And people cannot see your how you talk about it, and could not see you in the in the in the course itself. But it really was obvious that it gave you a lot of joy doing that. Yeah. So progressing from this to the assistant dean office. 
Yeah, it was, um, it was quite a transition. Um, so I, I, um, I oversaw the mind course for two, three years. I can't even remember anymore. Um, a couple of cycles. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the position is that I got to teach. I really enjoy teaching. Um, it was one of, one of the other things that I liked about academia. Um, and I wasn't entirely sure whether this particular role was going to have a, a whole lot of that, which so far it doesn't. So that's unfortunate for me. But um, one of the things that I was really craving was to get into a little bit more policy. Um, you know, I know this from my personal experience as a, as a postdoc at UCSF and as a former graduate student, but um, we, when I would have career counseling sessions with people in the MIND program and then in the GSI's program, I was hearing a lot of concern that was, um, what, we call it, what we call it a presenting issue. Somebody would come with a presenting issue of I'm looking for, I'm exploring my career options here. But then when you got to the underlying issue, it was because they were having um, some problems with their PI or that there was a process that was hindering them from being able to go to where they wanted to be. Um, one of the things that really interested me about this position was that I would be able to kind of get my, my hands into that and to understand the players behind it and how, how, how institutional policy was affecting um, the experiences of postdocs and graduate students. So, um, so that was the allure of the position. Um, and, um, and honestly, I was, um, I really enjoyed the MIND program, but it was kind of becoming a little too easy for me. The job was a, I had, you know, by the third year, it was, you know, it, let me just be clear, it's not an easy position. But by the time I was in my third year, I had gotten into a rhythm. And so things were becoming easy for me. And I was, I was looking for a new challenge. And this job definitely is a challenge. <laughs> you, can you give our listeners an example of how, as a policymaker, as a as a, uh, as a policy leader at a research institute, you use your scientific skills? Yes, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I do on a regular basis um, is I will be triaging questions, requests, information from people. Um, and usually what that does is, for me as a scientist, is an opportunity to do some informal data gathering. Um, and then to, um, and from that, to try and pick a, paint a picture of what the heck is actually happening, contextualizing the problem. That usually leads to me developing a hypothesis. And hypothesis in this word means, let's propose a policy or let's pr propose a process that will get to a good outcome. Um, what that also means is there's some pre-assessment that you have to do, right? So um, in, in no sense of the word will I try and, you know, implement a policy without either doing a needs assessment or doing some sort of evaluation um, of how it's affecting. Just because I think it's a good idea doesn't mean that it's a good idea. I need data to support whether or not it's a good idea. So that part is the, um, is the other piece that I use almost on a daily basis. The other part that I use, and I have to be honest about this, is that I use the, I use, I have credibility because I came from a research background and that allows me to talk to postdocs and to faculty in a way that they understand in a way that they're used to being communicated to. Um, the language that I had to adopt when I went into staff world was like that was a culture shock for me. Um, 
and getting, but being able to now, now that I've understood that language, being able to now navigate both spheres because you really need both to get things done at a university has been really useful. Um, and so I think part of the scientific training is also just understanding the culture. Um, and I feel like that is the other part that I use every single day. So going, doing all the way from bench through the mind course to the, to the positions as a policymaker, and you said you have credibility, so you can talk to both ends. You are, you are in the limbo. With, you can present, better present the scientists on one end and, and relay it properly to the uh, higher, higher up the chain of policymaking through the, through the institutional and national even uh, uh, decision makers. How did you learn all of this? So the science, uh, you had like 15 years at the bench. Was it solely on the job training and really learning on the fly or you had a process that you forced yourself through? Um, that's a great question. It has been completely on the job training. I don't get it right most of the time, um, but I learn really quickly. <laughs> when I did, when I get it wrong, I, I learned not to do that again. There, um, there have been some aspects that I would say that I learned as as the director of the MIND program that allowed me to develop some of these skills um, very early on, um, mostly because what I was doing, what I was doing as, a, as the director of the MIND program was not just delivering content, but I was also um, the, the person who was responsible for delivering and analyzing data that was sent to the NIH and working with people within the BEST consortium, within the consortium of institutions that received this award, um, as well as with uh, people at the NIH to kind of either get them this information or interpret this information or, um, and so I had a lot of on the job training, kind of being able to work within UCSF, outside of UCSF, and then with funding agencies like NIH. Um, and again, talking on the policy level um, and using data to back up um, procedures and processes and policies. So um, I would say that that's where a, a lot of the fast training came after my PA, after my postdoc. I did a little bit of that as a graduate student, but certainly not to this level. Um, with regards to what I do now, it is, it is on the job training. I have to tell you that the, the, the learning curve for this position was as steep as when I started my postdoc. Um, I felt like when I started my postdoc, I, I felt very confident as a scientist. I knew my, I knew my science inside and out. Um, and when I came to UCSF, I remember thinking, I'm starting in a new field. I know where, I know what I know, and I know what I don't know. What I don't know is a lot, but wait, I know a lot. So this is confusing to me. Also, I have to navigate an entire new environment. And where, where's the PCR machine and where's the minus 80 that has like, the cell line that, you know, like the, the, the line that I need. So um, that's kind of how I feel now in this new position. It's like, I know UCSF, I know who these people are, but there's now an entirely new set of people that I'm interacting with that I never met before. There's also a new language that I'm using, but wait, I work here. Like the office hasn't changed that much. I don't understand. So it's about the same experience. Um, with regards to language around policy, I'm learning that on the fly. I have a lot of help from people who are more senior than me who are helping me navigate that. 
Um, so I'm not doing it alone, just to be clear, but it is definitely on the job training. And, you know, you really can't get more, you can't get more better experience than a pandemic. Um, and I have to tell you that navigating a pandemic was not on my to-do list for the first year. My, my goal for this first year was just to understand the position and understand the needs. Um, but I'm not there right now. We are at, we need to develop policy. We need to develop processes and we need to do it yesterday. So it's been, it's been, um, the need has been so high that I've just been having to learn faster. I can share that as part of the postal community, we're very appreciative of the communication, the flow of, of information that comes from, from the administration. And we really, we feel that we're not at this very uh, harsh times, we are not left in the dark and wondering what's going to happen. We get daily updates and that, that is very important. And that's a great policy as an institution as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, and, and I can't take credit for that. I have to say that um, my credit is just to making sure that postdocs are in that line of communication, but <laughs> but that that policy on how the communication is coming from higher up. So we have to congratulate our leadership on that and all of the people who are making sure that all that work is getting done to get the word out. Something that came up when I thought of questions to um, and and the um, this interview. So we are very in health science. Biomedical UCSF is a biomedical in a focused institute, but you work with other institutes. Is this issue that the mind course, the gap that the mind course in your office now comes to breach, is that an issue for other uh, fields like engineering, social sciences? It absolutely is. It's a great question, and it's absolutely a big issue. Um, biomedical sciences is not unique in how they are, how historically they've trained people um, to really become faculty. Um, the humanities have that issue. Um, the, the physical sciences have that issue. I think that the issues are probably um, within the context of looking at all of these fields a little bit more um, pronounced among biomedical scientists only because there is so much, there's more of them. Right, so there's, there's more money for them, there's more money for training, and so therefore we have a big population of people who are in that. But I don't think that the, the issues around career exploration and professional development during the PhD training or the postdoctoral training are unique to the biomedical sciences at all. In fact, we've had a number of institutions who have adopted parts of the MIND course, um, uh, for their own purposes to serve a broader set of disciplines. Um, and, um, and as I mentioned before, UCSF was just one of 17 recipients of this Broadening Experiences in Scientific Training Award. Um, and those institutions, unlike UCSF, usually, uh, most, most of them have all disciplines represented. Um, and so one of the things that um, our sister institutions did with that award when they did institutionalize it, if they were able to, was to make it applicable, broadly applicable to people outside of the biomedical sciences. Um, so it's a great question. Um, the skills that you learn in the mind course um, are skills that you are going to need to succeed as a professional in any discipline, from any background and for any career. 
so for future applicants, either grad students or postdoc, is there a way, is there a, uh, um, a place we can figure out if the institute we're aiming to join runs this kind of course? Yes, so that's a great question as well, Ofer. I would say that there is something that every trainee, prospective trainee should be doing when they're assessing an opportunity, which is to think about not only what kind of scientific or research or whatever subfield specialty training that you're going to get, but also think about the environment. What kind of what kind of environment is there? What kind of resources there are units there to support your development as a professional and to support the possibility for you to consider a diversity of careers? The easiest thing you can do is to hop into Google and do a search at your institution, do a keyword search of your favorite institution and career office or career and see what pops up. See if they have a centralized office. Um, if they have a centralized office, that's potentially a good sign. But if they don't have a centralized office, that's not the end of the world either because um, there may still be opportunities available to you. Um, and one of the things that you could do is do searches on your favorite institution's alumni. Sometimes the alumni association will have, will be the person or the, the unit kind of hosting those opportunities. Sometimes it's under each school. So sometimes each school will have a career unit or an officer um, and just see how transparent they are, regardless of how they're organized, how transparent they are in their offerings. Is it something that is hidden and not very well described or is it something where they kind of showcase all of their resources? A place that is going to showcase and is transparent about their resources is probably gonna be a place that is gonna support this type of career exploration and is going to it is going to it and will support you in that in that part of your training as well um that's if it's important to you i think it should be important to everybody but in the end there are some people who say nope i'm hyper focused i know what i want to do and that's fine too yeah, usually uh, through approaching to the end of the interview i ask the people to have what is their one big tip of um, transitioning from academia to industry or exploring alternative um, career paths to academia. But I think that this entire conversation was full of those and people are really, 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 really has you can go back and list them up. And the last one is a great, um, a great example of how, how to choose the next five years if you're a grad student, how to, to choose where you relocate as a postdoc. And, so what is what is uh, let's say let's imagine we're out of this COVID nineteen crisis on the other end and we can actually meet people. What is uh, what is the future of, uh, for you, Gabby? I think it's a great question, and I'm <laughs> smiling because I'm thinking, wow, this is this is a really unique time in the time of COVID, right? If that could be a book in the time of COVID, because I think. The optimist in me really wants to believe that this is going to be the catalyst for fundamental change in the way we set up our institutions. And for that, and if that is true, I'm extremely excited of what that could mean. Um, you know, the pessimist in me knows that that's not all my dreams will come true, but the fact that, you know, for example, we are sheltering in place here in the Bay Area and we will be for another month means that we have we have thousands upon thousands of people who are attempting to work from home um, or at least being at home and trying to work and what does that mean for the time that we spend in training 
what does it mean not only for the duration, the total duration, but what does it mean in terms of the activities that are prioritized? As a postdoc, as a bench postdoc, a research bench postdoc, your priority is to be at the bench and to be generating data. But we also know that the postdoc is a critical period for you to launch your research independence, which means that you need to write papers and write grants and come up with independent ideas. And so is this period, is this period where people are not allowed to be at the bench doing that work mean that we actually think more carefully about those other aspects of training that are important for, for becoming independent and not having it be something that you kind of push off and push off until the last year when you're writing your K99? I don't know, but I'm optimistic about that. Um, I'm optimistic about saying, hey, why don't we reform the tr- the, re- the training so that this period of writing grants is not something that we just do at the beginning at the end of the postdoc, but we do it all throughout. Maybe we do it once a week or every day. Um, and it's prioritized in a way that is easy for postdocs to adopt, right? So that there's institutional support for it, not just you should do this because it's good for you, but that, that UCSF makes it easy for you to do this and makes it favorable for you to do this because maybe you get on, you get better grants that allow you to do the work that you want to do. Or um, the other part of this is um, I think a lot about, because I, I'm in this, this business of supporting strong relationships between faculty and trainees is what this means for, for positive relationships to form. Um, and I'm particularly thinking about our more vulnerable postdocs who maybe aren't in good environments or don't have good relationships with their PIs and are vulnerable career-wise. And now that we don't have the physical space between us to like see those interactions, I also wonder, is there a way where now that we're in kind of this physical distancing that we can think about what it means to have conversations, meaningful conversations that are going to support the career interests of the postdoc, as well as get what needs to be done, the faculty needs to get done. Um, And to think about that within this medium of like, okay, we're no longer, like we have somebody who could be a mediator through these conversations to make sure that they're working together rather than kind of hearing about it after the fact or not knowing. So again, this is, I'm just brainstorming here, but I think that there, there's, I think there's some opportunity during this kind of really dark time to, to improve the postdoctoral training experience. And I'm hoping that at some point I am going to get, I'm going to be able to kind of think through that with other postdocs, with faculty, and really think about what that could mean once we're out of the pandemic um, and we're somehow back, <laughs> whenever that is. You can find a large hole and sit the uh, six yeah. feet apart right. and really talk it through. Right. Right, exactly. Yep. <laughs> cool. Gabby, that was a fascinating conversation. Really, your uh, course is amazing. And uh, uh, the transition to the mind course and the current position. And uh, again, I want to thank you for your time. 